Hello, listeners. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Coordinator for Little Brown Books for Young Readers, and today I'm excited to talk about Grace and Fury. It's a young adult novel about a pair of sisters fighting for freedom and recognition of their humanity in a male-ruled world that subjugates women in all aspects of their lives. Boya says it will appeal to readers who enjoy fantasy and strong female protagonists, and Bookless says you should buy an extra copy. And I agree, because readers have been clamoring for it. Queen of Ruin is the sequel to Grace and Fury, and I can't wait to share it with you when it hits shelves this summer on July 2nd. Author Tracy Bangart is graciously joining us for this podcast, and I couldn't be more excited to speak to her today and introduce her to all of you. Tracy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Awesome. So I'm going to start with some questions that will introduce you to our listeners as a writer and as a thinker so that they can get to know you a little bit a little bit better before we jump into the book. So the first question I have is why do you write and what do you love about writing? So I have always actually wanted to be a writer. When I was growing up, I lived out in the country in the middle of nowhere with a cornfield in my backyard and my parents were teachers. So As if that isolation wasn't enough, we'd spend every summer at our lake house in the middle of the wilds of northern Ontario. And I was by myself a lot, so I ended up reading a ton. Books were kind of my best friends. I took them everywhere, and they just meant so much to me that I knew from a young age I wanted to use my imagination and creativity that way. So now I kind of write for that girl in the cabin by herself, you know, trying to find new worlds. I want to give her something and girls like her something exciting. I love that. Um, One of my favorite things that authors tell me sometimes is that they write for the girl they were or the person they Mm -hmm. were when they were younger. And that's just such a powerful idea to think about who you were when you were younger and think about what you needed, what you needed to read, what you needed to hear and to bring that to the world. And I think, I think, you know, in, in it's a lot of times it's because we as teenagers or young people couldn't find the books that we, that would have helped us the most. For me, you know, I was very lucky. I, I found a lot of books that worked for me and that that I loved but there's always that like you know trope or that character or that storyline that you just love that you want to put your own spin on and then in terms of what I love about writing I think my favorite thing is the sort of process of finding connections the moments or words or themes that come full circle or link up in some way because that doesn't actually happen that often, and when it does, it really makes me feel like I am a writer, because a lot of writing is kind of the slog. It's it's just getting the ideas on paper so you can make them better later, and finding those moments where 30 pages in or 50 pages in, a little detail that you hadn't really thought about becomes something significant or symbolic, and, you know, you kind of, you have this, like, nice little pat on the back, like, I totally meant to do that even if you didn't, but it makes you feel like, hey, this is something that, you know, I actually can do, and I'm making these connections. I love that part of it. That's so interesting to hear you say that, because one of the things I love the most about Grace and Fury 
is all the symbolism and all the metaphors and all the ways that all the storytelling that's within the narrative. I love that about Grease and Fury. Well, thank you. I, I'm really excited about everyone reading Queen of Ruin. One of my favorite things, one of my favorite connections like that, and hopefully this isn't too much of a spoiler, but I realized as I was sort of finishing Grace and, or, uh, Queen of Ruin, I mean, one of the, the last revision rounds, I realized that at the end of Queen of Ruin, there are questions answered that were asked in the very first chapter and the very first two chapters of Grace and Fury. And I don't, I don't mean plot questions. I just mean like thematically the sort of place where Serena and Nomi start the book and where they end the series made a circle that really felt so satisfying and wasn't part of my original outline for Queen of Ruin. So that was really fun. I'm so excited to finish it now. Or even more excited. All right. So the next question I have is, you wrote about how Serena and Nomi came to you before in this excellent essay that you wrote for us last year. And I'll link to it in in the description that I have beneath this podcast. But I think it'd be a great story for our listeners to hear. So could you tell it to us again? Sure. So the, the short version is that my... Fierce and rebellious sisters were born out of the anger and helplessness that I felt after the 2016 election. I woke up the morning of the election feeling so much hope and excitement because I was absolutely 100% ready to celebrate the first female president, only to discover, as we all did, that that wasn't going to happen. And I grew up with a lot of sort of casual sexism and, you know, kind of bad messaging for girls and for women. And it was a real kind of punch in the stomach that made me realize that the state of the country hasn't improved all that much since I was a kid in terms of, you know, the way we treat and the way we respect women. And it made me really angry. So I wanted to explore those feelings and give my characters a chance to fight back the way I kind of internally sort of wanted to. (laughs) I love that your answer to your anger and your disappointment was to use your imagination and to create a world where the characters you made could fight back on such a grand scale. I feel like so much of what we do in real life from day to day is so much smaller than what Serena and Nomi do just because we don't live in a fantasy, right? We live in in the real world. So it was like, it was a release to read Grace and Fury and to see them going on these big adventures. And I can say that I had the same reaction as you, only I stayed up to watch it the night of the election. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And like the next day I had to go into work. And so I live in New York City. And it was so quiet on the train. And you could tell everybody how everybody was feeling. And then at work, we didn't even get anything done. We, like, ordered in pizza and had a a mock therapy session. So, Oh, my gosh. It was... So, at the time, I lived in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, everything was kind of... We were six hours behind. Mm -hmm. So, by the time... I didn't have to really stay up, like, around dinner time we kind of knew where things were going and uh, I just remember breaking into tears when Hillary conceded because it was just, uh, it was, 
oh, the feelings are so <laughs> so. I just wasn't prepared for that, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It was rough. Yeah. But I think what you said about, you know, Serena and Nomi kind of fighting back on a grand scale, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's true that that's hard to do when you're not living in the fantasy book, but I think that the response after the election and the response over the last couple of years has actually been on that level in terms of the protesting and people calling their representatives and, you know, really sort of stepping up and learning about our own government. You know, I think it was a wake-up call for a lot of people, and I've been really heartened to see how much more engagement and how, you know, how much fighting back, as it were, you know, there really has been, so... Yeah, I think if if I can say that a positive thing has come out of it is that people are a lot more engaged with their local governments and the federal government and just interested in how things are done in their country. And I think people feel a little bit more empowered, too, just because they are engaged. Yeah, I agree. I, I would say that that would be my silver lining if we can say there's a silver lining. Not to get all political, but hey, it's a feminist book. What can I say? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is political. Many readers have compared Grace and Fury to Margaret Atwood's classic, The Handmaid's Tale. Bookless said The Handmaid's Tale gets a YA twist, and Bustle said it's like The Handmaid's Tale meets The Bachelor. I wanted to ask you, what were some of your literary and artistic influences when writing Grace and Fury? So this is a bit embarrassing to admit, and I am really, really honored by the comparison, but I've actually never read The Handmaid's Tale, mostly because I wasn't sure I could handle it. And then, of course, I went and wrote my own oppressive world. (laughs) But I think I was influenced a lot, not so much by other novels as by music while I was writing Grace and Fury, specifically songs like Halsey's Castle and Milk's song Quiet, which came out around the election. And after the election, a lot of feminist poetry was sort of making the rounds on Twitter, and I found that to be very inspiring, too. A couple of the poems I remember reading, Differences of Opinion by Wendy Cope, which is basically a poem about mansplaining. Joy McCullough's Bloodwater Paint, she was tweeting some lines from it, and I just remember really being inspired and influenced by that. And honestly, the Wonder Woman movie, it came out when I was working on revisions for Grace and Fury, and I remember going to the theater and just bawling during the No Man's Land scene, and and also just getting really excited during the Themyscira scenes, because in a lot of ways, that's kind of how I imagined Mount Ruin, except, you know, a little bit less female empowerment initially, but just with the fighting and, you know, the training and stuff like that and all the women kind of being there for each other. So I, I would say that those were kind of my main influences when I was writing it. Viridia is this brilliantly imagined world. It has history, it has laws and customs, it has folk tales. How were you able to create such a rich world? Were there any parts of the world building that you wrangled with in particular that were particularly difficult for you? And are there any aspects about Viridia that you wanted to remind readers of our real current world? Setting-wise, I was inspired by two of my favorite places. Mount Ruin um, was inspired by the Big Island of Hawaii, 
when I lived on Oahu, which I'm so sad I don't live there anymore, but when I was there, we took a trip to the Big Island, and I was just absolutely fascinated by the way that the lava had transformed the landscape. I mean, even just, you know, leaving the airport and driving up the coast, there's, it's, I've never seen anything like it. These whirls of black rock, and then you get to the caldera, and it's like a moonscape. It's, it was very distinctive and really interesting to me, and I wanted to create an environment that looked similar, and that's how Mount Ruin became a volcanic island. And then as for Viridia and the palace, I was inspired by Italy. I studied abroad there in college, and I went there for my honeymoon, um, and I fell in love with the food, because who doesn't? <laughs> the architecture, the language, and I wanted to specifically, and one of the reasons why I chose Italy was because when I, when I worked on a very, very early draft of Grace and Fury, I actually took that kind of Mount Ruin, the, the island, um, the volcanic island, and, and had kind of a sort of Hawaiian-inspired setting overall. And I realized as I was kind of Im imposing these oppressive patriarchal rules onto this world that that might say something about Hawaiian culture and, and Hawaii in general that I didn't feel comfortable with and that it wasn't really my story to tell. I felt a little bit appropriative in a way. So I decided that while I really loved the kind of volcanic island element of Mount Ruin, I wanted the world itself to be set in a different, you know, in a place that was inspired by a different culture. And I chose Italy because there, there is actually a volcanic island, although it's different, near Italy, and because I had spent a lot of time there, and it felt, and it always felt very rich and like it would fit with the kind of world I was trying to create without, you know, having a kind of European sensibility. It doesn't feel appropriative in the same way, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the rules of the world, the oppressiveness, that was definitely the hardest part to create because it was depressing. <laughs> I had to do all these things to my characters that I didn't enjoy. But the reason it's depressing and it was hard was because in large part, there are still places in the world where women struggle to be allowed an education, where they have limited opportunities and are not giving control of their choices and their futures. And even here in the U.S., there are areas of real life that feel a little too close to Viridia's politics than I'd like. I mean, you look at the, what the Senate's doing mm -hmm. and, you know, with abortion and stuff like that. I mean, we, we are still kind of fighting some of these fights even now. And I hate to say that the world of Grace and Fury is, you know, similar. To, similar. I wish I could say it was total fantasy, but it's really not, you know, for a lot of people. So It was born out of reality. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Was it difficult to write a YA fantasy that tackles such a big and thorny topic as the patriarchy? Honestly, I found it pretty cathartic. It was difficult because I had to live in a mental space where, you know, characters were, like, it was very oppressive and I had to do things to my characters that I'd obviously rather not do, as I said. But it was cathartic because, of course, there wouldn't be a story if the status quo stayed the same. So, you know, it's empowering to write about rebellion, and it was satisfying to take this strict patriarchy and, you know, basically tear it all down. 
It was cathartic to read it too. I I I loved I loved Serena's narrative. Like I love Nomi. Yeah. But reading about Serena, I was like flipping the pages so that I could get to her parts more quickly. Just yeah. watching her change from a grace to becoming the kind of the leader that she becomes almost unwittingly mm-hmm. but in a very smart way just watching her become that leader i just i loved it so much she's my aspirational character oh she she's in in the sense that you know she takes what she's been given and she finds a way to be stronger for it i just love that about her i think nomi's journey in the first book is really different you know she thinks she's got it all figured out as as mu- many younger siblings do right she <laughs> yes. thinks she's got it all figured out and you know she's on the she's on the right side but she's still as influenced by her world as Serena is and that makes it and that that means that for her she maybe makes some mistakes and trusts people that she shouldn't trust or isn't as smart about certain things because she has kind of you know assumed that she knows what she's doing mm-hmm. and and so her story is you know her her arc is a little more painful in the sense that she's kind of being brought down to earth in a little in, in a little in a lot of ways whereas mm-hmm. Serena is finding her power and mm-hmm. you know realizing what she's capable of yeah, I felt like Nomi was going through some growing pains and that because Serena had been trained to be a grace and to just to constantly be aware of everything, of her body, of how she was presenting herself, of how she was interacting with people, she had more suspicion. She had more concern about the motives of other people than yeah. Nomi well, she does. Yeah, the world. I mean, she... She didn't have any blinders on. Yeah. You know, in the sense of, like, Nomi thought she did. Nomi thought Serena wasn't aware of, you know, how repressive the world is. And I think Serena was just, you know, it didn't mean the same thing to her going in. She was aware, but, you know, she wasn't, she didn't feel compelled to change it initially. Mm-hmm. But like you said, she had that awareness. Mm-hmm. And since we've already started talking about the book let's just continue with my next question so we were talking about grace and nomi uh not grace and nomi serena and nomi so i'm going to continue with a question about their sisterhood i think at the core of grace and fury and queen of ruin is the relationship between serena and nomi there are books about sisterhood and i think it says a lot that a book about women fighting for their rights has at its center not one sole heroine, but a pair of sisters. I'm a sister, and I always love stories about sisterhood. All of Austin's sisters, like the Bennetts and the Dashwoods, Jessica and Elizabeth from Sweet Valley High, I read all of those books when I was younger, Um, Katniss and Primrose (laughs) from The Hunger Games, Celie and Nettie from The Color Purple. Um, I'm going to stop here and say that I even watched the television show for Sweet Valley High that lasted like a season before it was canceled. (laughs) And I also watched the TV show for 10 Things I Hate About You, which was all about sisterhood too. I love that show. Um, So could you talk a little bit about sisterhood, what it means to you, why you chose to have a pair of sisters in your narrative? And I also wanted to ask you, how did you come up with Serena and Nomi's 
differing personalities and how were you able to illustrate the fierce love they have for each other even though they're so different? So I think sisterhood and friend and female friendship is a running theme in all of my books because I think women supporting each other and lifting each other up is so important. I, I love romance in, in my novels. I love reading books with, you know, a romantic pairing. But I will say, and I've always kind of tried to aim for this, I, I've, I've always said that I write books where the first kiss is sort of on the way to adventure as opposed to in lieu of adventure. And I think that's true for, for the series as well. The central relationships and the central love story is between these two female characters and between the, the women that they interact with and, and the women that become their bigger sisterhood. And that's important in my life, too. You know, yes, I'm married. I have a relationship. But my female friendships, the women in my life, are the ones who've truly been there and kind of carried me along and built me up through the years. And I think that's really, really important for women and for girls. And at the time that I was reading a lot as a teenager, there were a lot of books that pitted girls against each other. You know, there were the mean girls, there were the bullies. And I think it's important to see relationships and to see characters be there for each other. In terms of their personalities, Serena and Nomi's personalities, I thought a lot about my role in my family versus my brother's role, who is my brother's younger. As the eldest, I always felt the that sort of weight of expectation that, like Serena does, I felt compelled to be responsible, to be protective of my younger brother. And I think those qualities we see a lot in Serena. She feels like she needs to protect Nomi. She feels the weight of expectation from her family and their hopes for her. But like Nomi, I also felt this kind of thread of rebellion. You know, I didn't want to be the person I was expected to be. I wanted to be myself and make my own choices. And that's how Nomi feels. But she's also rash and maybe doesn't always think things through, which I think can be a quality of younger siblings, certainly my brother. And then I think in terms of their relationship, it was really important to me that it didn't be antagonistic. Yes, they have different worldviews, and yes, circumstances put them in opposition. But I didn't want the story to center around them learning to value each other. Because I think a lot of stories about siblings that I've read, that you see in movies, I mean, even like kids' cartoons, like Boss Baby and stuff like that, it's all about the siblings being at odds and then going through something and sort of learning to value each other and learning to appreciate each other. I, I feel like that story's been told and also that that's not always how it is. It was really important to me that even when they were mad or frustrated with each other, their love for each other was never questioned because I really didn't want to put them at odds. I think that really comes through because one of the things that stayed with me after finishing Grace and Fury and going into Queen of Ruin is how both Serena and Nomi, whenever they kind of overcome something or they realize something, they always think of each other. And Serena and Nomi both say, Serena says, oh, Nomi was right. And then Nomi, when she's going through something, she says, oh, Serena was right. It's like, yeah. it's like even though they're so different because their places get switched, kind of, they mm -hmm. start to see 
from one another's perspectives better and they start to understand the world that each of them were living in and kind of like that gives them a better understanding of the like the overarching world as a whole and not just from their own perspective yeah like together they're the perfect person yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think you answered this a little bit you said you were both like serena and nomi but i wanted to ask you anyway are you more of a serena or are you more of a nomi I am both. I think I've had different periods of my life where I've been one or the other. Now, maybe I'm a little more Serena. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Serena is more aspirational for me. I wish I was as much of a badass as she is. Oh, and I think I often feel like no me, you know, where I, I feel like my head and my heart are in the right place, but I'm not always like, maybe I'm making decisions a little too quickly or not thinking things through. <laughs> Serena's totally an aspirational character for me, too. And one of the things I liked so much about her was that she didn't exactly set out to be, like, a revolutionary or a leader, you know? She just kind of, she did what she had to do, and she also, what makes her a revolutionary and a leader is the love that she has for the women that she meets and just how kind she is. One of the things that was really important to me about Serena's story was you know, she's she's this perfect, you know, graceful person who's been trained her whole life to be soft and pliant and obedient. And then she gets thrown into this world where she's literally having to fight to the death. And it was really important to me that she didn't sort of become Katniss immediately and be this, like, amazing fighter. So if you read closely in her action scenes where she is, you know, fighting in the ring, she does a lot of just, like she kind of lucks out in a lot of ways because the other women fight each other and she like pushes people around and like uses her size and her stature to like push people around, but she's not actually a good fighter. Like she doesn't, you know, she's still learning and she's, she becomes this kind of leader character and she becomes somebody who, who, you know, does, I think on some level command respect, but she doesn't do it through, her her skill and I think to me that was both realistic and also kind of important Mm -hmm. because I didn't want her to be you know the leader because she's like the best fighter or something Mm -hmm. that's not really what the message that I was sort of going for I really like that at the very beginning of Grace and Fury there's a line that that reads it wasn't Serena's fault that Viridia gave women so few choices it made me wonder, what can a person do as an individual when they're faced with structural problems, problems that seem so much bigger than they are? Do you have any ideas or suggestions? Grace and Fury ends on a cliffhanger. How do Serena and Nomi, as individuals, continue their fight against the structures that keep them from being full citizens and full humans in Queen of Ruin? So this is a really tough question, and I'm certainly no expert. I think sometimes it can feel really overwhelming, but I also think that there are things that we as individuals can do. The big one, we can vote. You know, we live in a country where people do have the vote. Women do, you know, women can vote. We can call our representatives. We can educate ourselves about the ways, the structures in our lives, like government, you know, how they work and how they're broken. We can protest we can listen to and amplify the voices of those who are affected by structural inequalities. 
I think we can stand up and say something when we see someone being treated unfairly. I think there are little and big ways, you know, and and it can feel when you when you sort of see these structural problems, it can feel really overwhelming and like they are so much bigger, like you said. But even little things like, you know, you're at the grocery store and you see somebody making fun of somebody or you see somebody talking to someone disrespectfully, you know, interceding, going and redirecting that conversation or showing solidarity with a person who's being verbally attacked. Just little things like that can make a huge difference in that person's life, certainly, but also in not making not making it seem like it's okay to treat people that way. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of Serena and Nomi specifically and how they continued their fight against the structures that are keeping them down, I think of Grayson Fury as the story that sets up this bleak, oppressive world and Queen of Ruin as what happens when our heroes tear it all down. And of course, dismantling a system of oppression isn't easy. Serena and Nomi will both be challenged mentally and physically, and things might not turn out as perfectly as they hope. But as in Grace and Fury, they each have their challenges, their individual challenges and their journeys to take. I hope that people reading Queen of Ruin will be satisfied with how they do. I love that word that you use, solidarity, because one of the things I found in Grace and Fury is that Nomi, who didn't have the best thoughts about Graces before, when she becomes a Grace and she's surrounded by other Graces and she's surrounded by girls who were raised the way her older sister were raised, she finds friendship with some of them. And then Serena on Mount Ruin she finds friendship with the women who are there, even though the whole thing about Mount Ruin is that these women are pitted against each other, like, for their lives. It's a life or death situation on Mount Ruin. But she's still able to reach out to people and find friendship and find camaraderie and find solidarity. And that was one of the things I picked up on in Grace and Fury, and I was thinking that, even though like things seem overwhelming sometimes, one of the things you can do is just, you know, reach out to the person who's next to you and maybe it won't be as, you won't feel as alone. It was really important to me to not vilify the graces, you know, mm-hmm. and, and even there is kind of a, a bit of a mean girl grace character, you know, even her, I never, I, I don't think she's uncomplicated and she's not ever part of, a betrayal. She never actively works against any of the other characters. You know, she obviously doesn't like Nomi very much, and she's bought into this competition. She's bought into what society tells her she's supposed to do and what she's supposed to be. But even then, she's not ever actively working against Nomi or sabotaging her. Because I think that's a huge problem in society. I think women, you know, I in terms of sexism and women and relationships, you know, that we have with each other, there's this kind of sense that, like, we can't all succeed and and somehow, you know, we have to compete with one another. We have to sabotage each other. We have to be at odds constantly. And I honestly think, I believe that that's something that the patriarchy has done kind of intentionally to sort of divide and conquer us. Like the guards on, you know, on Mount Ruin, they have all these women who are dangerous, 
if they pit them against each other, the women aren't going to be fighting them Mm -hmm. because they know that if the women do fight them, they might not win. You made such an interesting point and it made me think of that word one, like just how it applies to women. Like there can only be one woman who's good at this one thing. And there's Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and her her thing about only having one story. And also like whenever you talk about women and people always talk about, oh, is she going to have a family or is she going to have a career? She can only have one. She can't have it all. You know, it's always like you can only have one. There can only be one. This is one of the things that does make fun that it's sisters, right? Because yeah. there's never just one. <laughs> yeah. There's another sentence that leapt up at me as I was reading. It goes, Serena knew how she was supposed to act when a man desired her. Obedient, submissive, acquiescent. But she'd spent weeks fighting to unlearn all that she knew about the world. That word, unlearn, what does it mean to you? Why is it important to unlearn certain ways of the world? And what are some of the things you think literature can help us unlearn and how? This is another really tough question. To be honest, I think I've spent most of my adult life unlearning things that I was taught about myself and the world as a child, um, which is sad but also hopeful because it means we can unlearn. As I mentioned Initially, I grew up in a rural, um, it was a very white area with a lot of casual sexism, both in my family and in my community. I grew up internalizing a lot of unconscious biases and ideas about how a woman should be treated. And I think as an adult, especially one in the young adult literature community, I've had a lot of those biases challenged And I've also had to examine and excavate my own internalized sexism. And one of the things that really drove that home, actually, for me was the election. Because throughout the campaign and that sort of aftermath and the hot takes about, you know, how and why it happened, afterwards I realized how many ideas I had about Hillary Clinton had been formed by male reporters and politicians and not by actual facts and my own analysis. So now I pay a lot more attention to the sources of information I consume and the perspective from which it was created. I think that literature can give us windows into other experiences and that that in turn can help us unlearn things we've internalized like stereotypes and sexism. It's so interesting but also fun to watch both Serena and Nomi unlearning things because the thing about it is as they're unlearning these things, they're also like learning new things, you know, new ways of being in the world, new ways that they can interact with other people. And learning things about themselves. You know, I think as Serena is kind of unlearning what it means to be a woman, she's also learning that some of those qualities that she has already are really strengths, you know. Um, I think there's a scene where she's training for the fighting and... You know, she feels like she's she's not good for anything but being a punching bag. But she keeps getting up. And she keeps, you know, she keeps standing up. She doesn't give up. And that's something that is a real strength. And it's also something where she, it's a quality that she learned in her kind of training at, to, be, to become a grace that also serves her well in this new purpose. It's It's an internal quality that she's, kind of turning to a new task, but is, is a strength that she's always had. It's not something 
new for her. She's just using it in a different way. And I think that can be true for us. I think, you know, you can take feelings about the world or about yourself and you can examine them and you can find strength in your own self-reflection and in, you know, in yourself as you work through the world in a different way. Absolutely. I think my favorite thing about books is what they reveal about gender. You were just talking about gender, actually, a little bit. But Serena is groomed to be a grace her whole life and Nomi to be her handmaiden. Serena basically spends her whole life learning how to be a woman, as you were saying before. But at the very beginning of Grace and Fury, their places are switched because of a man. Like, a man decides that Nomi's going to be a grace and not Serena. Right. And in their ensuing journey, we get to see how everything each of them learned about being a girl has been constructed with the purpose of keeping them both subjugated and valuable for Viridia. Could you speak a little bit about that? I think so many of the messages that women and girls get from media, culture, and society come down to being functions of the patriarchy designed to keep us down, Mm -hmm. to not put too fine a point on it. I think pitting, (laughs) you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, pitting women against each other, the constant comparison, that idea that there can only be one, that encourages us to fight each other instead of working together to dismantle the patriarchy. And you can see it so clearly in, you know, for example, the politics in this country, a female candidate is perceived as too young or too old or too attractive or not attractive enough or too bossy or too unlikable. And these are words that would never be used to describe a male candidate. And in fact, they're the very qualities that often make a male candidate appealing. And I think that's really telling. I think gender, the idea of what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man. I mean, you look at the the recent controversy over that Gillette ad, Mm -hmm. which is basically just asking men to be good people. If you see somebody bullying, you know, try to stop them or dismantle that behavior, you know, be respectful of women. I mean, these are, these are not radical concepts. And yet this touched a huge chord and like people were really, men were really angry about this idea. Mm You know, I think all of these things, toxic masculinity, femininity, you know, I I think about the fact that, I mean, just in the most subtle ways, I was at McDonald's last night with my six-year-old son, and we were getting, you know, Happy Meal through the drive-thru, and I was asked if I wanted a girl toy or a boy toy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't care, just give me whatever. And it was literally, and the person, you know, taking my order really had a moment where they were like, well, what, I mean, like, the idea that a boy could have a girl toy, particularly, and I think that's that's the key, right? It's not as big a deal for girls to play with quote-unquote boy toys mm-hmm. because they're seen as value. But boys playing with girl toys, there's, there's an inherent, you know, discomfort with that. And I think it's because of the way we devalue women. Women's things, women, things that are perceived as female, you know, women's toys, they're seen as not as valuable. Mm-hmm. There's, and I... And that's something that, you know, in my personal life, I tried to kind of challenge in myself and, and with my child as well. You know, we, we have conversations about how there aren't girl and boy toys. There are just toys, and you can play with whatever you want and stuff like that. This sort of idea 
of what it means to be a, a woman or a man and, and the, the relative value that our society assigns to those things are constructions. Mm-hmm. Because my son doesn't care if it's a Wonder Woman shield or a Captain America shield. It's a shield. It's cool, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he has both. <laughs> it's something that we have to, again, unlearn, and it's something that is designed to keep women at a different level than men in society. Going back to Austin, I love Austin. Like in all the podcasts I've I've done, I always mention Austin. Um, so going back to Austin, so there's this thing about the Austin men, right? There's Darcy, mm-hmm. there's Colonel Brandon, there's Captain Wentworth. My favorite is Henry Tilney from Northanger Abbey. And since mm-hmm. I asked you before if you were a Serena or a Nomi, I'm wondering if you're a Val girl or a, am I saying his name right? Malachi girl. All right. So I think I'm a Val girl all the way. <laughs> and personally, I've always had a soft spot. Side note, I've always had a soft spot for Captain Wentworth, but as, as Austin men go. I used to be a Darcy girl, but you a grow up. These days. <laughs> I know, like, you know, the whole anger thing. Yeah. You know. But I, I am definitely a Val girl, and I think the reason is because he really understands and respects women, mm-hmm. and I think he understands and respects what Serena is trying to accomplish, and he's also supportive in a way that's very appealing to me. He's my male feminist, and I see him as a real ally, and I think that's really important. I, you know, when people talk about feminism, there's always that, there's always that person that is like, oh, it's man-hating, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's not. It's about getting an equal seat at the table, and I think it's important to show, well, it was important to me anyway, to show that it wasn't just the women against the men, that there were male characters who were supportive and respectful and who, in return, received that same support and respect from women. Like Serena, I mean, Serena and and Val, they're developing very slowly potentially a romantic relationship, but more than that, they're friends and they're, they're for each other. Malachi is still learning. I don't think that he's, or, or I should say, rather, unlearning. Mm-hmm. I think that he was more of a, more entrenched in the society's rules for um, gender and stuff like that in his world, um, considering his role in, in this world. Mm-hmm. And I think that he's still going through the process of figuring out and understanding the dark underpinnings of his society. Mm-hmm. I think he's got a lot of potential. So we'll see in Queen of Ruin if he can live up to it. But in the meantime, that was um, my guy. <laughs> you're talking about them actually just made me realize something in that Val has, I mean, I guess Val has had the opportunity, but Val has like different relationships with different women, right? He has his mom, mm-hmm. and then he has the relation. He has good relationships with the women on Mount Ruin, and then he has his relationship mm-hmm. with Serena. And then when I think of Malachi, he like I remember that scene where they're talking about the head Grace, who who's his birth mother, but like she never got to raise him. So it's like he grew up yep. without a mother. So it makes me wonder, like, what relationships does he have? with women he doesn't really have anything other than like seeing his father with like the dozens of graces that he's had over the course of his entire life and then know me 
Yeah, I mean, he he definitely has a much higher sort of hill to climb in terms of really getting it. Mm -hmm. And I think that Nomi intrigues him, and I think that she's kind of opening his eyes to stuff. But, and you know what, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but, but he does... He does have potential, mm-hmm. um, but but in Queen of Ruin, you know, he's it's not like he's sort of this woke being who is going to make all the right decisions and say all the right things. Mm-hmm. Their their friendship and their relationship and wherever it ends up, you know, has a lot of questions and answers and conversations that they need to have to kind of figure things out. Um, I think in my mind, you know, it makes sense that Val and Malachi would come to come to their sisters and come to this world differently. Mm-hmm. You know, Val, Val's family was kind of enlightened. The reason why Val is kind of enlightened is that his, his father did trade with other countries that had different rules and different laws, and he learned from that. And he and his wife, Val's mother, you know, decided to do something differently and, and kind of, and they raised their son by necessity differently as well. We are the products of our environment, right? Mm-hmm. And and we can unlearn things, but if you start out getting the right messages earlier, it's easier. What would you like readers to take away from Grace and Fury and Queen of Ruin? Most of all, I hope they have fun reading the books. Um, I hope that they enjoy watching Serena and Nomi claim their power. And I hope that the stories make them feel empowered they, you know, ultimately, they're, they're fun fantasy novels, you know, mm-hmm. and I want, I want them to be consumed as such, but if there are any takeaways, I hope it's that as women, we're stronger working together than apart, and we don't need to compete with one another, and that there are lots of different ways to be strong. Not all the characters are badasses wielding swords, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, well, and I had one other, but I'm not going to share it because it's a spoiler. Okay. (laughs) For our next podcast, then. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. I really enjoy talking about these deeper issues and themes, and I hope that if listeners out there pick up Grace and Fury, I hope they enjoy it and have fun spending time with my sisters. Tracy, thank you again for taking the time to speak to me and for sharing Serena and Nomi's world with us. Women's rights is such an important topic, especially now, but all the time. And you do a fantastic job of making it accessible to young readers. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Grace and Fury is out now. Pick it up. And Queen of Ruin will be out this summer. Pick that up, too. You can follow Tracy and her writing adventures on Twitter at at TracyTheWriter. And you can always find us here at LB School. Until next time.